country with the world's highest GDP also has the world's highest incarceration rate. But of all the millions of people currently caged in America, there are twice as many people who are currently on some sort of probation, parole, or supervised release. They live every day in limbo, somewhere between prison and freedom, and in a heartbeat they can be reincarcerated for something as simple as missing a meeting, missing an appointment with a counselor, going to the wrong part of town, losing their job, or taking out a car loan without asking permission. This structure keeps them in the criminal justice machine for decades after their original sentences served and for lifetimes after their original offense. I spent last summer at the parole division of the Public Defender Service for the District of Columbia. There I met some amazing lawyers, including Vincent Haskell, who agreed to come on this show and tell us about the parole and supervised release system as it exists in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Service Roads. I'm Vincent Haskell, and I am the Student Training Coordinator of the Parole Division at the Public Defender Service in the District of Columbia. I know it's a long title, but basically that means that I am in our parole division. We represent people that are facing revocation of parole and supervised release. And that type of practice, while the consequences for our clients are very large, is a more informal practice, which allows students the opportunity to represent clients while they're in law school directly. And I'm responsible for coordinating that program. So I don't know if I can mention you by name, Logan, but you, of course, Logan. came. Yes. You're Logan. And you came to work at the parole division at PDS this summer, and I was responsible for screening you, right? Mm -hmm. Assembling an interview team to, to screen you because we want to make sure the students that come really are up to the task of representing clients directly that are facing a loss of liberty, and then put on a training program for you and then assign you to a supervising attorney and kind of monitor you during the course of the, of the internship. On top, on top of that, I represent my own clients as well that are facing revocation of parole. Right. Um, and so parole and supervised release, they get conflated and people get mixed up about them. Very true. Yes. And they also, the third term that equally gets conflated and mixed up amongst those is probation. Okay. And I wrote a little article once about those distinctions. Um, that's absolutely correct. All three involve criminal cases where, for some reason, you are now on court supervision um, or on supervision. Parole and supervised release both are things that happen after you complete a felony sentence. It used to be parole, and now it is supervised release. Some states still have parole. Many have moved over to a supervised release system. The basic idea for both is the same. The idea is that you've, commit, you've, you've been convicted of a felony, you've done time in prison, and when you come out, you should be on some form of supervision. You shouldn't just have your life and be able to do whatever you want and go wherever you want. I think that's the mindset behind having people on supervision. Supervision wouldn't work unless, in, at least in the mindset of people that are doing this or setting these systems up, if there were not consequences for failing supervision. Mm -hmm. And that's where we come into play. And, and we'll probably talk about this later, but what is not so known to the public is that so many times, particularly here in D.C., the consequences that you get for these violations of supervision 
that can often dwarf the sentence you received for your felony in the first place. Mm -hmm. Represented someone last week, or actually another student that's a colleague of yours, Logan, and he on his first felony received six months from the judge. And he uh, didn't see his parole officer, and he was looking at two years for the violation of not seeing an, his parole officer. And he was in his early 20s. He'd never had a felony before. And he really had no concept that you could face that kind of consequence. And that happens over and over and over again. Probation, I'll go back to probation, is a little different because that is usually or almost exclusively something that is done by a judge, sentence in, in, that a judge gives instead of going to prison. Um, and so you're on probation, and when you violate probation, you go back before the judge who sentenced you, and then that judge can take away your probation, and depending on whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, can sentence you to jail or to prison, and then followed by supervision. Little distinction between parole and supervised release. Parole was the old system, and so in parole, the parole boards, and you see them in movies like the Shawshank Redemption, mm -hmm. but the parole boards are sort of known and notorious and sort of viewed through this lens of movies and whatnot. The basic idea of parole is that you have a long sentence. Everyone's given a long sentence. And this parole board gets to decide when you get out. And if you do get out, when you go back and for how long you go back for. So in D.C., even for a nonviolent felony like a small-time drug distribution case, someone would get a sentence like 5 to 15 years. And they would typically be paroled in even less than 5 years. 5 would mean when they're eligible, 5 years eligible for parole. But that can even be advanced by good time, uh, by various credits that you get while you're locked up. But the remaining decade or longer is on parole. And during that time, you can have to face the parole board and they can send you back for any part of those many years that you have on parole. So that meant many people on parole were living life going back and forth to prison. Because even if you stop committing felony offenses, it's very easy to go back to prison on a violation. Something as simple, here we are in the District of Columbia where marijuana is legal, but if you use marijuana when you're in supervision, and we see this all the time, you can go back to prison for a year. Misappointments. Go on a cruise out of the jurisdiction. Travel to a job to pick up uh, furniture because you are a furniture mover. These are things that people get violated for, so it's very easy. An arrest, any kind of arrest. Even if the case is dismissed, very easy to go back in on a violation. So people were doing going back and forth to prison on violations for many years when they're on parole. Now, there was a reform, I'll call it a reform, to this supervised release system, um, which replaced parole in D.C. and in many other jurisdictions. And I'm not sure that it was thinking about the well-being of our clients, right. but rather it was thinking that when someone gave you 15 years as a sentence, you shouldn't be out in four. So it's kind of part of the truth in sentencing reform, mm -hmm. that the reform was to one number. So if the judge gives you 10 years, then by, by God, you do close to the 10 years. And so that became the supervised release system. But going back to what I said earlier, there was still this thought that you should face some type of supervision and possible return to prison when you complete your time. So there's kind of a, they're at odds with each other a little bit. So they created a system where you have a certain amount of time that you can go back to prison for that's not related to how long the judge gave you. It's usually shorter than parole sentences, but it has its own issues and challenges that keep people on supervision for long and often as long as people are who are on parole for. So does that answer a little bit about parole, yeah. supervised release, and probation? Yes. Can you talk about the challenges that make supervised release, like, 
when you when you look at the sentences, it's like parole five to fifteen. I get out in five, and there's ten years of parole. Right. And for the same kind of crime, someone would get uh, three or four years on the supervised release system. Three or four years with three years of supervised release. Correct. And so the total number in that is six, mm-hmm. when in the old one it was 15. Yes. But somehow, with supervised release, even though those are smaller numbers, people are still continuing on it just as long as they used to. They are, and and, and that's... I can speak specifically of D.C., where they have a... I'll start with parole. We talked about a 5 to 15-year sentence, and you get paroled after five years, and you're on parole for 10 years. Well, the D.C. law has gone through some evolution. At one point, if you were on parole for nine of those years and then you got in trouble, you got credit for those nine years. But when the federal government took over D.C.'s laws, uh, D.C.'s criminal justice system in the 80s, they had a different interpretation, and they decided that you don't get credit for that time. And so what that meant was if you got in trouble some number of years into your term of parole and you got revoked and went back to prison... You lost credit for all the years you were on parole. Mm-hmm. We call that street time here in D.C. There was, it was very unfair. I mean, the more time that you did well on parole, the more time you forfeited when you went to prison. And, and if you can imagine, even as I said, a, a nonviolent felony, you might be on parole for over a decade. But if you were on parole for robbery, it could be two or three decades very easily. And so it's impossible to finish that if every time that you get sent back to prison, even for one year for testing positive for drug or missing appointments with your parole officer or not maintaining employment, very simple reasons, you'd often go back to prison for a year, then you'd also lose credit for the seven years you were on parole or the five years, and they get tacked on to when you were going to finish parole. Eventually, um, thankfully, there was a reform in the law in D.C., which changed that law so that people on parole now do get credit under certain circumstances for that time they're on parole. And that was a great reform. Took a lot of work, uh, a lot of allies in the system, including the then uh, uh, um, administration under Obama that was in support of this. Because we are a federal jurisdiction, the attorney general actually had to support this change in the law, even though it was passed by city council. Now over to supervised release. That does not exist for supervised release. That reform did not get made for supervised release. So that means that when you are on supervised release for, in D.C. is typically either three or five years, um, you go three or four years on supervision, but you haven't made it to the finish line and you get in trouble, then you get revoked. You might get one year, again, if it's a very simple violation, um, and then you have to start the five years all over again. And because of that, People on supervised release, now, I like to call it, not like to call it, but I do see it as the new parole, which is to say that people that got caught on supervised release, even for a drug offense, um, nonviolent, small amount, can end up in the system for a decade or pushing two decades, even though the judge, as you said earlier, might give three years as a sentence and four years of supervised release. One of the reasons that is and why it is really skewed in D.C. is because of the drug laws here. And why I say that is each charge in D.C. has an amount of time that you can go back to prison for. So a robbery or assault with a dangerous weapon, these are pretty serious cases. They have two years of time that you can go back to prison for. And that's backup time. That's called backup time. 
But unfortunately, in D.C., every drug distribution charge, whether you're a trafficker of kilos or you are someone who has an addiction and is helping an undercover that you meet on the street, go score one or two bags, two bags of crack cocaine and you take one. That's all you're getting for that transaction. Because of the drug laws, you have the same statutory maximum. Basically, every case like that has a maximum of 30 years whether it's a big-time drug deal or it is a small one-bag transaction. Judges sentence according to that amount, so clients in that situation don't get a long sentence from the judge. But because everybody's captured under the same scheme, that person faces a lot of supervision and a lot of backup time, where someone who's convicted of an even more serious offense, much more serious offense, does not face that kind of supervision time and backup time. So in a case like I just described, the judge might give six months and one year of supervised release. That is a, a someone who has an addiction, uh, helps an undercover uh, get two bags of crack cocaine so that he can have one for himself for no money gain. That person might get six months from the judge and one year of supervised release. And they may think, no problem, if I complete my one year of supervised release, Great, if I don't, then I can just get six months because that's what the judge gave me or one year or maybe how much is left of the one year. But that's just not true, unfortunately, in D.C. Because when they get violated, then they face the United States Parole Commission and under the supervised release law, they are allowed to resentence up to what the judge could have given. So very typically there, person comes back in, maybe they still are using cocaine and they tested positive and and as a result, the parole officer wants to bring them back to prison and they get one year in prison. That's a very typical sentence for what we call technical violations like testing positive, not breaking the law, but just missing appointments, testing positive, not maintaining a job, leaving the jurisdiction. They get a year. Mind you, they got six months for their underlying felony. And then the parole commission resentences them to the five years of supervised release that the judge could have given, but did not give initially. And we see that happen again and again and again, which brings up another issue, which is that part of the reason that that all happens in D.C. is because we are in this place where the federal government has taken over our local criminal justice jurisdiction. That happened in the 80s. It was sort of an arrangement uh, that was made during the Clinton administration And in some ways, it means more resources, but it also means that people from the outside make decisions about our local population in a way that's not consistent with the values of our community. And that's what we see. Um, And I have to say that, you know, there are times when it's better. The last administration was progressive and kind of matched closer to the values of the District of Columbia. But under the current administration or the previous one, there are times where Because this is a federal jurisdiction, what's going to happen is the president of the United States is going to appoint the parole commissioners who make the decisions about whether to send D.C. inmates back to prison or not. And those folks can have absolutely no connection to D.C. Right now, the current people on the parole commission, there's three and one is leaving. There's actually five five places. Two have not been filled for quite a while. And there's three and one is leaving. The people that are going to come in, almost certainly with the new administration, have no connection to D.C. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they can come from a conservative community in rural 
Texas. And they will come and they will impose their will. And they have really a lot of power for the reasons I just discussed earlier to continually send people back to prison for much longer than their local judge sentenced them to. And when they do go to prison, because it's a federal jurisdiction, they aren't even in prison locally. They are sent into the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Indiana. Indiana, West Virginia, Florida, Georgia. There's a penitentiary in Atlanta, all over. Uh, They have a policy to try to keep people more local, but, you know, 300, 400 miles very often. And if the the, it, it can be all over the country. And that means it's harder to stay connected to your family and your community, harder to reintegrate to society when you come back. I don't know how up to date this is, but Donald Trump has a lot of problems getting appointments, doing appointments, or focusing his attention on appointing people. Uh, do you think that the U.S. Parole Commission could dodge that bullet? Or like well, that's a great question. At some point, I think, if, as I was saying, there's actually the, the, the law has five United States parole commissioners and they're appointed for six-year terms by the president. There's currently three and um, one has announced and probably has already left to leave. Um, She was appointed by Obama. I don't know what her reasons are for leaving, but she's left the parole commission. So there'll be just two out of the five. That creates logistical issues that are huge not just how much work they have to do but when you appeal a case it has to go to a different commissioner but there's there's only two who can break the tie if you don't have a agreement i mean there's just real problems with two uh, probably that were avoided when there were three and my understanding from talking to people at the commission is that there are some people in the works that are being considered for appointments there were these two openings under the Obama administration, he actually nominated two people to become commissioners. Mm-hmm. And similar to the Supreme Court position, Garland situation. that's correct. Yeah. They were not confirmed. They were sat on. Um, one of them came from our office, the Public Defender Service. The mm-hmm. other was a former hearing examiner that I personally appeared in front of many, many, many times and thought very highly of. Mm-hmm. I think they would have been great additions. Um, but unfortunately, they're conf- they were never confirmed by the Senate. And so the openings remained. As you mentioned, Trump's already been in office for significant time. Hasn't changed that. But I saw, I do believe with, that that with will two, change. With it's, it's, it's a it's lot more, more obvious. Yes, yeah. exactly correct. This summer, all of our clients were people who were alleged to have violated their parole or their supervised release. Um, so we only saw the people who did not succeed or were alleged to have not succeeded. Right. Um, And so I wonder, I mean, I definitely, from what I've seen, don't believe that this is right or fair or productive in any way, but is it possible that we are skewed because, you know, the same way that, you know, doctors really only see sick people, we only see people that have not, uh, that have, we don't see any of the people who have succeeded on supervised release, either in spite of the supervised release or because of the support or, you know, resources that can come with a supervision uh, sentence. Yes, um, that's an excellent point. I think the numbers, I don't have the uh, statistical numbers to say how many people who were placed on three or five years of supervised release, because again, those are the only two numbers. Mm-hmm. And in an area uh, like D.C. where police are aggressive and stop people for many things, um, 
all it takes is an arrest. You know, if you have an addiction, all it takes is testing positive. Uh, public transportation, very, very difficult to get around and make it to every appointment in D.C. Unlike in other jurisdictions where there are more field visits, one of the requirements is that you come and you see your supervision officer. I can't tell you how many clients I've had who said it's just really difficult on public transportation to make it to this office. And so there are so many factors that cause people to get revoked over the course of a three or five year term of supervised release. I am sure there are um, people who do successfully make it through and we don't get to see those people. But unfortunately, I'm very confident it's not a majority that never face a revocation or a possibility of a revocation, at least coming in because a parole officer has requested that over the course of their time. There's just so many limits on what you can do in three or five years. And in parole, even longer than that is a long time to avoid an arrest. Again, it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong, but, but people are arrested in Southeast DC all the time, just because it's, uh, you know, that's the, the aggressive policing that goes on in that area. And, and many of our clients are caught up in that where they are arrested or misappointments or misappointments because they're trying to keep a job. Um, you know, that happens so that all the time. So that they, they don't violate the employment. They don't violate the employment or they're trying to provide for a family. I, I can't tell you how many times that there are conflicts. And there are really a lot of good supervision officers out there. And then there are a lot that kind of make it very clear it's my way or the highway, or in this case, my way or back to prison aren't, aren't so flexible. But all of it is sort of set up to make it very, very difficult yeah. to complete supervision without a violation. Okay. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, describing it as like successful or unsuccessful on, on parole would require that, you know, getting revoked ha has a strong, uh, relationship with like what your behavior was and not like, that's this right. is normal human behavior. And when you act, if you try to act like a normal person and like keep a job and like, uh, miss appointments like you or I would, and we'd like call and be like, Oh, Hey, like I couldn't come in and this thing came up. Right. Like if you're on supervised release, things can't come up. That's that's exactly it. I think that people would think that people get violated, get violated because they're messing up. But I can't tell you how many times I have clients that will tell me stories. Or I had this job and my parole officer kept going to the job and, and it really, you know, and announcing herself to the boss and to everyone who was at that retail job and they fired me because of that and then I didn't have a job or another example is DC is such an expensive housing market it's a very small area-wise community and many clients families have moved to Maryland or Virginia and clients can't follow their families there because they're on supervision for those three or five years I had a client whose brother was a detective with the Metropolitan Police Department in Maryland and had a bedroom for a client to live and he couldn't live there and instead he had to live in a homeless shelter and that scenario plays itself out over and over again once you're in that homeless shelter first you're exposed to the things that might cause you to relapse you are and i had clients that are in unsanitary conditions at the shelter and don't want to stay there and have said i've left the shelter because i had bed bugs and the parole officer says, you have no permission to leave the shelter. That's where you're supposed to be. I checked the shelter. You're not there anymore. I'm violating you. So lots of normal life things, exactly, still end up sending people back to prison. Um, and another one that is also sort of a very clear picture of our federal local 
dynamic here in D.C. is that the D.C. laws have changed for marijuana. It is legal to use marijuana in the District of Columbia. And our clients that are on probation and have to appear before a judge are not tested for marijuana. But if you're on parole or supervised release and you're under this federal jurisdiction, then you are tested for marijuana and you are often violated and returned to prison for using marijuana, um, which is very unfortunate because these are people that very much may have jobs, are not a risk to the community, are taking care of their family, and are not able to, to, to comply with their supervision officers, you know, mandates to stop using marijuana and often feel that it's very unfair mm -hmm. um, because of that law. Again, different administrations, different situations right now, the current attorney general is very big on making sure that marijuana is illegal and continues to be illegal. And to the extent that it conflicts with local jurisdictions, uh, he wants federal jurisdiction to trump, literally the local jurisdictions. And we see that because we are in this jurisdiction that's both federal and local. Yeah. Um, when I applied, you had us read a Supreme Court case, Morrissey versus Brewer. I did. Um, and it's a Supreme Court case, so it applies to us, but it applies everywhere in the country. If, some, if someone's on a supervision type thing, whatever that jurisdiction calls it, after a sentence, then they have certain due process rights if the thing that they're looking at is going back into a jail. That's or a exactly prison. right. Um, so can you talk about uh, talk about what you think is what people should know about that case? Sure. And uh, I, if I remember during the interview process before your final interview, I asked you to read that case. And it is sort of our groundwork, just as we know and most of us know that in the United States, that if you're accused of a crime, that you have a right to have a lawyer to represent you. That comes from a case called Gideon that the Supreme Court decided in that same era. And likewise, for clients on parole or supervised release, they do have certain rights before they go back to prison. And they are not as equally extensive as your rights when you're initially charged with a crime. The thought being you've already been convicted of a crime, a felony, and that sentence has not been completed. And so jurisdictions or enforcement, law enforcement should have more ability to send you back to prison without all of the set of rights that are granted to you by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And Morrissey lays out the basic framework for that. And it says, yes, you do have certain rights if you are in the community already and facing going back to prison, including the right to a hearing. Uh, the hearing also involves the right to confront the witnesses against you, but it's not an absolute right. Uh, you have the right to present evidence, um, but all the rules of evidence don't apply. So that if there are allegations against you, hearsay and things that are indirect can still come in against you. And things that are not against the law, like missing appointments, can cause you to go back to prison. It's in that framework that even the student practice uh, rules that you, uh, Logan, were able to benefit from and benefit our clients come from that informality that's discussed in Morrissey, mm -hmm. that the board themselves don't need to be lawyers or be barred. So the people who are examiners can be parole officers, and many are. And likewise, there's student practice. There's no formal rules of evidence. And we found that committed students like yourself that are ready to fight for their clients and put the legwork in and investigate cases and be assertive and articulate in hearings can do a fantastic job for their clients. And that's um, a little bit about Morrissey versus Brewer. So uh, towards the end of the summer, we've had some 
Brady issues. Now, Brady isn't really a rule of evidence, but it's a rule about evidence. And my understanding is it applies, but you know, prosecutors generally have trouble understanding, and they are lawyers. Um, and now we're in a situation where certain evidence doesn't come to us before the hearing when it should. Yes. I mean, it's interesting because the parole commission is generally, you know, it, it's not a criminal proceeding. And in many ways that works to our client's disadvantage as a lower standard of proof of violation before you can send someone back to prison. The rules of evidence don't apply. And, um, you know, we don't have subpoena power, but it also means that there is discovery that the parole commission gives us their packet that they have. So in a rank and file typical case, the commission is going to send us a police report if there was an arrest and a violation report. And they don't often do independent research on that, typically. Um, and instead, they rely on the witnesses that they've subpoenaed from the police report and the parole officer to come to the final hearing to testify against our clients. That's what they're there to do. And, and so that Brady issue doesn't come up as much where the commission itself has the information that's exculpatory, that's what you're mm -hmm. referring to. But what it underscores is the role the prosecutor in the underlying case has and can do, and how this informality can hurt our clients. I just got a call this week from a federal defender in Philadelphia that is representing a client who was my client here in D.C. And here's the situation. The client was charged with robbery here in D.C. and acquitted of robbery. Now, in D.C., again, because of that federal local dynamic where the Federal Parole Commission doesn't honor the decisions of the local court automatically, the commission then um, has the opportunity and very typically comes after or charges our client with the same robbery that they actually were acquitted of. We had an initial hearing in that case and at that initial hearing, the examiner found no probable cause on the robbery that the client was acquitted of. And that was good news. That meant the client was only facing the remaining charges that they were not acquitted of or their technical violations. Okay. However, the prosecutor in that case wasn't satisfied, the one that had lost the case and the case was acquitted, and sent all kinds of information to the parole commission. And the parole commission's reopening the case. Again, it's a different process, and people are like, you know, this is double jeopardy. Well, that doesn't apply. There's all kinds of things and protections that don't apply in the parole context. Now, will we end up getting that information before the parole hearing, or will my colleague in Philadelphia? Yeah, I wouldn't expect that they're not going to get the information, but the problem is there was a decision made, and then the, 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 the prosecutor went around that. And that kind of thing happens a lot more than you think. Not in the rank-and-file average case, but in the more serious cases, the rules are in favor of being able to lock someone back up on much less evidence than is required in court. And where a prosecutor loses a case and has a personal interest in the case, they have the ability to communicate directly with the parole commission. There's no rule against ex parte communications. They can send their file over and say, I think this guy is guilty in the parole commission unfortunately, we'll listen to that in the absence of a formal proceeding, reinitiate the, the proceedings, and then we're in a different situation. Of course, there will be a hearing, but the Parole Commission now has access to all the things that that prosecutor 
had and their own interpretation of the outcome rather than accepting what the jury had decided in that case. Right. And we see that a lot. You know, the parole commission here in D.C., I'll say it's made a living, but it has regularly, routinely, it is absolutely expected business that if your case is dismissed or you are acquitted in court, that you will then face that same charge that you just had a favorable outcome for as a parole violation with a lower standard proof, with relaxed evidentiary standards, and often face much more time than you would have even faced in that charge if you were found guilty in court. And I do think that that, even in conservative states, that doesn't happen. Uh, because the state of whatever conservative state I can give as an example, Mississippi, if someone's acquitted in Mississippi, the parole commission is going to honor the acquittal. And we see that many, many jurisdictions, Virginia, I know because they're adjacent to us, will not go and proceed on a case that's been favorably, um, had a favorable result in court. And nothing can be further from the truth with the United States Parole Commission respecting and honoring the decisions of the local court here. And if it were a D.C. parole board, which there is a movement, to return this back to D.C., like every other state has in this country, um, that they would honor, if it was a local parole, parole board, they would honor the outcome that happened in court. But again, the Parole Commission has made its work about violating people, our clients, for charges that have been successfully, for our clients' perspective, been resolved in court. So the U.S. Parole Commission, they have jurisdiction over D.C. code offenders. Yes. Also, people who are on federal supervised release. Well, no. Close. Okay. They, they did, they were the United States Parole Commission, Parole Commission, not Supervised Release Commission. Okay. So as we were saying, there's been an evolution of the law away from parole and towards supervised release. And I said in different states, that's changed and some places still have parole. In the federal system itself, parole was abolished 30 years ago. Right. And so there still are people on parole. If you received a life sentence and the parole board paroled you or you're coming up for parole eligibility, the United States Parole Commission would still have jurisdiction over you. But that's a shrinking population 30 years after parole has ended. The Parole Commission was aware of that and decided that it would be a effort, uh, uh, not an effort, but a, a good thing for its the life of its agency to take over the D.C system. And as DC was becoming federalized in the 80s, it was a great opportunity to do that and to make sure that they continued to exist into the future. In the federal system, when parole was abolished, they too went to supervised release, which while not exactly the same, is very similar to the supervised release that I described to you earlier, a sentence followed by a, a term of supervised release and a certain amount of backup time hanging over your head. Um, in federal court, the supervised release violations go back to the judge who sentenced. That person has more information. They also have more flexibility. There's a very draconian, draconian guideline system that the parole commission has uh, that the judge doesn't have. So if the judge wants to say, you know what, you tested positive for marijuana, you were warned not to do that, I'm going to give you three months and close out your case, they can do that. And they would do that. They know the original sentence, they're familiar with it. They watch the case happen. That's exactly right. So they're not going to turn around and sentence someone to two years that they sentenced to six months originally. It won't happen. They have more flexibility and more autonomy to do that. Um, the parole commission will do that in a heartbeat. That's what they do. I mean, it's just what they do every day. And there might be some good people in it, but they just accept that this is the what we can do and what we will do. Right. Um, I will add, though, that in D.C., 
when the DC system went to supervised release, there was talk about the judges taking on the supervised release violations. And I think it's a combination of the parole commission needing more clients because they are going to go away. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that as well as the superior court judges, like, you know, this will be a lot more work. This means that we'll have, I mean, of course they could hire more judges as well, but it right. would mean that there would be more cases that would come back to their docket instead of sort of out of sight, out of mind. They give the sentence, the violations don't have to come back to them. They don't have to worry about it. It just goes off into another oblivion. It does. And and really, I've talked to many judges over the years. Some have actually had their clerks call me about these things because they cannot believe some of the violations and sentences and length of sentences that they're, that people who were sentenced under them are getting for violations. Uh, I just think it's unknown that the, the knowledge isn't up, isn't out there. One of the added bonuses of the summer law clerk program and parole is that, that so many more people get the chance to learn about that parole system and how harsh it can be and how it can be like an iceberg in terms of the effect it has on our client. The iceberg being the part underwater is the parole system and the part above water is the criminal justice system. Yeah. And I know no one intended it to be that way, but it is that way. And I think getting more knowledge out there about that is very helpful, whether it's students that have come through. We've had a pro bono program in place for many, many years. We train the CJA bar so that they learn more. The CJA bar being the private criminal defense attorneys that take court-appointed cases. We try to train them about the parole consequences, and we just try to get the knowledge out there about what is called the... I think, Logan, actually, we were at a meeting, and you had a, a, a word for this hidden sentences or something. There was some some name that you came up with, or you and your colleague came up with. It's like a silent killer. It's like, it is it's like, like a, a silent killer. Because when we talk about recidivism, people are thinking that like it's... People who do a crime, they get out and they do another one. Right. And it's like, it's like, they think about it as like prison makes you more likely to commit a crime. And right. it's like, that's, you know, that may be part of the story, but it's like to get to the numbers we're at, it can't just be that. And it's, you know, there's more people that are on supervision that are actually inside of a jail. Right. Right. Or that are actually incarcerated. In- incarcerated just- versus on supervision. What you said is so on point, and I can't tell you how many... I mean, people that are committing the kind of crimes that we have to be concerned about might much very more often be a 19-year-old that does rob somebody. But what happens is they're 19 years old and they rob someone, they're charged as an adult, or even if they're 17 or 16, these are so many of my clients, and they're going to get some very long sentence. They're going to be in prison for like 10 years, 8, 10 years. I see this all the time. They come out, the last thing on their mind will ever be robbing someone again. Mm -hmm. I joke about it with my clients. Like, of course not. Like, uh, no way. I'm not 19. That's some stupid stuff. I would never, ever do that. But that person is still going to struggle for the reasons I talked about earlier with making it through supervision, even though there's no way that that person is ever going to consider another armed robbery. Yeah. It's like the the distance between... A uh, 17-year-old and a 27-year-old is 10 years, and the distance between a 35-year-old and a 45-year-old is 10 years. But the amount of a different person you are from when you're in your teens to when you're in your late 20s is like the idea that, you know, they still like have criminal proclivity or whatever that might be is like belied by what we've seen every day this summer. Yes, so. that's right. That's right. That's um, right. 
And so a lot of our listeners are law students uh, looking to get summer jobs and postgraduate jobs in the public interest. Uh, what advice do you have? Uh, classes to take, letters to write, movies to watch, whatever. Do it all. Do it you all. Know, do it all. I think reading books about this work is a good thing to do. Taking clinics is a great thing to do. Developing mentors and finding mentors is outstanding. I mean, just like life outside of public interest, so much of what we accomplish is connected to who we know and who we've made friendships with and who we've um, fostered relationships with. So all of those things are good. Um, you know, you're, if you are in law school and you're thinking about doing this work, you've got, you know, certainly people look very hard at what you do during your two summers. Um, I think you're in law school personally. You should have the freedom to explore and try different things, um, not necessarily do two of the same things, like two internships at a public defender office. I do suggest that you vary your experiences, but that they tell a story, just like we have to tell our client's story, that your path should tell a story about why this is the right work for you. Um, and hopefully, from where I stand, that it has something to do with caring about the people that you're going to represent. Maybe seeing injustice in the system and caring about the folks that you are going to fight for while respecting their humanity. Uh, that's my own personal look at it. And certainly when I'm doing hiring, and I do a lot of that, is that I am looking for people that are authentic, empathetic. Of course, you're going to work hard. Um, you know, and take it from there. I'm not so convinced that someone that just wants to litigate and could be a prosecutor or a public defender is the person that I'm going to probably consider hiring for my office. There might be some exceptions to that somewhere, but I think many offices like ours would, would see that very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I really enjoy, I think for students, the opportunity to actually do direct representation is great. I know we have that opportunity in the parole division at the Public Defender Service mm -hmm. where you get to represent clients and really get to see what it feels like to represent someone whose freedom is at stake. And they don't care that you're a law student. They care about their freedom and what you can do for it and what you see. And many of our students come out with a lot of confidence because they know I put the work in. I spoke for my client. My clients saw that. They might have even been tough and had their doubts when we first met. And even whether it turned out well or it didn't, our students are this summer had many great results. But as I've spoken today, there's so many ways in which the rules are stacked against you. And even if you put all the work in, your client still may go back to prison for a long time. But being confident knowing you can do the job by actually doing it is a great thing. So getting up on your feet, um, is a great thing. And I think law schools will often say that everyone should do a judicial internship because you can't go wrong with that. It's true. You can't go wrong with that. But I like people that step out on their feet and get up and take risks and take chances. And that works for me and probably works for a lot of people that I work with when they see mm -hmm. someone that they want to hire. So you, you mentioned the, the outcomes that we yes. got this summer. Um, a few days ago, I had a client who was Scott Sienna's supervision officer for about a year and a half. Um, severe, severe mental illness. And in that time when he wasn't talking to his supervision officer, he had a litany, a record of all of the different healthcare providers, all of the mental health care providers that he had been to. And it was very clear that he was consistently, as much as he could, despite 
schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, all of these problems that he was going to get mental health treatment. And normally they peg how much they put you in jail for for how long you were gone in certain situations. He was gone for 18 months. The sentence that was recommended by the examiner was three months. And he had already served one and a half of that. When he gets out, it's going to be a huge battle to get back into some housing, which he doesn't have now that uh, he's been incarcerated just on the suspicion of violating, and to get back in touch with healthcare providers, to get a new case manager, to get someone who's going to be in the inside of these providers to advocate for him. Despite that, three months was a good outcome. Of three months was an outstanding outcome, and you're right. It doesn't change the problems that that client is going to face because of that interruption in their life, but you're absolutely right. And I think that goes to sort of redefining success. We are in a very tough system, and you're going to have to look at that and say, this person got three months, and they could have gotten 18 months, and that's a bigger difference. You go away for 18 months, and your girlfriend might leave you. Your child might graduate from school. Your mother might get sick. You know, all those things can happen between the three, third month and the 18 month. And you have to remember that when you do this work. If you're just looking for that acquittal that you are going to get maybe in court, that's not always going to happen. And you have to remember that every month that we say can be the month that something doesn't happen, that client doesn't get um, assaulted in prison. And or maced. Uh, uh, right, exactly, exactly. And I tell you, I do receive letters from people that are in prison and tell me about exactly those things happening. So all we can do is, from our place is to fight for what our clients most want. What is interesting is that some of our clients are so beat down by the system that we've talked about that often will say, I will just prefer to take a longer sentence if that means that I don't have to come out on supervision. Yeah. And that's kind of tough. But ultimately, it's, it's really tough to hear that. It's understandable why someone would feel that, but it's tough to hear that. I've had people turn down the opportunity for four months to take two years just so that they would not have to um, come back out on supervision all over again. Yeah. That's what it, it means to them. But most clients really would prefer to get to their lives and get to their families and their community. And and even when someone is asking for time, it's not because they want to do the time or because it's pleasant. It's just because the alternative is to come back out and feel like you're in a system that's going to send you back again and again and again and just spread this out over a longer period of time. Yeah, I had a one of my other clients who has a child who lives in another state and He's thinking, you know, man, I, I just want to get out as soon as possible to see my daughter. Uh, I've been in jail for so much of her life and I want to get out and see her. And it's like, if you get out on supervision, you're not going to see her. She's in another state. You can't go there. And right. so, you know, it, and it's really odd to counsel someone on a decision of, you know, how much prison they can handle and how much time they can do when... You know, I've never been in prison. Have you ever been, ever been in prison? No, not in prison. So none of us have ever been in prison, and we're counseling them on a decision of, like, in a way that we have to just acknowledge that, like, this is your decision. And sometimes I feel like it's, like, empowering to tell someone that and, like, recognizing their agency and their humanity. But it's also, like, 
were giving them the hard job. Which, I mean, of course it makes sense that they would make this decision. And of course it should be theirs. But, like, it, it, sometimes it also feels like I'm copping out. Like, or, you know, women's, really, it's them I'm just copping kidding, out. Logan, but, all that, that battle that you're discussing just reminds me of why you were such a great student attorney this summer. Because it is exactly as you described. And it ultimately does have to be their decision. But sometimes you want to help them make that decision. That's just real. That's just human nature. Sometimes clients have the opportunity to do drug treatment, right, versus a prison sentence. And, you know, you, you kind of think, like, maybe you do want to go that direction. Mm -hmm. And there are ways to have those conversations. But ultimately, it is the client's decision. And we can't step in for them. It's, it's weird to be so anti-prison and then, like, present a deal that's like... <laughs> It's only a little bit of prison, right. you know? So, right. Yeah. Um, is there anything else? No, I, other than about? I really enjoyed having you working this summer and all of the group of law clerks that you work with. Okay. Um, I, you know, hope that our, our agency is able to continue that program so that students like yourself are able to come and have this unique opportunity to represent clients in parole revocation hearings. So start sending in applications soon. For next summer for sure right now due to agency constraints our program which is this year was nine uh students uh may be down as small as three students so it'll be much more competitive much smaller group of um, law students so yes if you're interested you should definitely definitely reach out as soon as possible and if you're interested in the public defender service in dc specify that you've heard about the parole division and you understand the opportunities it provides and you'd like to apply to that division. 